Does your home have a staffing strategy in place? StaffStat automates your shift filling process and intuitively predicts shift needs. Plan A works in tandem with StaffStat, offering homes a backup staffing model that supports employees and keeps residents safe and cared for. Learn more at ltcstaffingstrategy.com. I am with you 100% on this. This is why I'm so happy to be involved in a policy discussion. When the police officer arrived at my front door, the first thing I said to him was, he is big and he is violent, but please don't hurt him. He has Alzheimer's. And, the, he's, and this police officer said, I'm trained. I understand. Don't worry. This is Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. Long-term care is often stigmatized as a last resort for families. But the reality is that all types of people and their families seek long-term care to better support them in living a meaningful life by addressing their changing and increasing care needs. Long-term care provides peace of mind, especially when families cannot care for someone safely in their home any longer. Lisa Raitt is CIBC's Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking, after having served in the cabinet of former Prime Minister Stephen Harper as Minister of Labour, Minister of Natural Resources, and Minister of Transport, as well as Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Lisa was the Member of Parliament for Milton between 2008 and 2019. Lisa's husband, Bruce, was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's, and Lisa has shared her journey about managing his care needs and supporting her family through this journey on social media, inspiring and empowering Canadians to stop, pause, reflect about their own aging journey, and to rethink about how we can live a more meaningful and purposeful life. In this episode of Coming of Age, I'm privileged to speak with Lisa about her decision to speak publicly about her story, about Bruce's story and the stigma surrounding early onset Alzheimer's, and about how she believes that we as a society need to think differently about how we talk about dementia and about how we support one another in our journey as we age. Good morning, uh, Lisa, and welcome to our podcast, Coming of Age. Uh, Delighted to have you join us today to uh, really step back and talk about both the challenges that we're facing as an aging population and the things that we need to be thinking about and preparing for. And perhaps you could talk us through um, your journey with Bruce and and his diagnosis and, and where you are today. Thank you for including me on your podcast, Donna. I know that Bruce isn't a senior. He's 61 years old right now, and he is 6'2 and 230 pounds, which I think is an important metric for people to understand, especially when it comes to Alzheimer's, because we're not talking about somebody who is frail 
or somebody who is bedridden. We're talking about somebody who is actually very well coordinated and has strong grip and strength and ability to to move about of, of under his own steam, but not necessarily understanding where he's going at any given time. But I'll bring it all the way back to 2016. And I was a member of parliament sitting in the opposition and I was a critic for finance at the time. So I was still busy and I had constituents and I was traveling back and forth to Ottawa. And uh, Bruce was called into his boss's, his chairman's office. Bruce was the CEO of the Hamilton Port Authority. And he was told by his chair that they were really concerned with his performance, that they had been noticing some things in the past couple of months that staff had commented on that they were concerned about and just wanted to check in with them to see how things were. And Bruce had a, a number of discussions and interviews. And finally, he received a letter and a conversation with the letter at the conclusion of this review. And in that letter, they enunciated a number of different times when they had concerns about Bruce's performance. And it had to do with missing meetings, losing trains of thought, not being able to present, not understanding what was going on in the boardroom. And, you know, if I flash forward to today, Donna, that letter, when I review it, is a classic letter describing symptoms of Alzheimer's. Like, it is so clear to me. The board had a choice. They could have fired him immediately, but we would lose at that point long-term disability, health benefits, the whole bit. But for some reason, one of the people on the board said, maybe this isn't about performance. Maybe this is a medical issue. So let's suggest that Bruce go see his family doctor. And in the letter, it says at the very end, we suggest you go see your family doctor and we'll continue the conversation. And he went that day to the family doctor who happened to be in the same building as the Hamilton Port Authority. And the doctor did a really simple test. And it was the quick memory test where he says, Bruce, I'm going to tell you three objects. I want you to remember those objects. We're going to have a conversation about golf. And then I'm going to come back to those objects and you can tell me what they are. They carried out that little test. And sure enough, Bruce could not remember the three objects at all. And the doctor made a recommendation that he go see a specialist. End of March, we go see the specialist. I'm called the night before by the nurse to accompany him. And I thought, honestly, Donna, you know what I thought? I thought, oh, maybe they're dilating his eyes. That's why I have to go. I'm going to have to drive after this conversation with the doctor. And it turns out that was not the case at all. What it was, was it was an Alzheimer's doctor. We went in, Bruce was taken into one room to be to have some testing done with uh, a nurse, cognitive testing, the regular stuff that happens in an Alzheimer's appointment. I was put in a separate room, interviewed by the doctor to talk about things that I may have noticed. At the conclusion, the doctor came in to tell me that his diagnosis was young onset Alzheimer's and that they had to stop the testing with Bruce because he became so upset and so embarrassed. The realization of what was happening that they couldn't go forward. We made the decision that we weren't going to tell Bruce about his diagnosis at the time. And that was, uh, that was the beginning of me understanding and getting to know what Alzheimer's was. So heartbreaking because, you know, we think that we're planning for a future together. 
And I, I know from our own personal family experience, just how challenging it is to go to those meetings where they draw the clock and remember the words and, and the loss of freedom, but, but what it means to you as a family. As we are thinking about, you know, if you look at the statistics for dementia uh, and the population, the aging population that we have, we're not prepared for the people over the age of 65. How do you plan as a younger person to support that and to support your, your, your family as well through this process? Looking back, vision is 2020, and I now know what I should have done, but in that moment... What I did do was just decided uh, we were going to travel as much as possible. The first consideration, though, was Bruce is not going to be able to work anymore. And I have to make sure that our finances are in order and that we have a will and that we have a power of attorney because we went and got a second opinion after the March diagnosis. And it was after that second opinion in May of 2016 that I really started moving the ball forward in terms of sorting out the legalities of our life. Bruce and I got married. We were not married up to that point. We got married in September of 2016, put the wedding together very quickly with family and friends for two reasons. Number one, I really felt it was going to be the last time that he would have his entire family, his brothers and sisters with him. And it turned out to be the truth because with COVID, uh, there's no more family reunions. So we did that from a personal point of view. And from a legal point of view, I wanted to be sure in that moment, Bruce knew that I would always look after him, that there was not going to be any, any, uh, any talk of me leaving him, um, that we were married and that we were going to work together with respect to this. And I wanted him to have that comfort, even though I knew Donna, that at some point he was not going to remember who I was. It was, uh, it was the reality. I wanted him to have it in the back of his head. And I wanted the pictures of our wedding and I wanted our friends around us and I wanted a joyful moment. We had a, we really did. We had a beautiful, we had a beautiful moment. So first thing was about ensuring fiscal, financial and relationship stability. And then after that, it was travel, experiencing the moment and seeing as many people as we possibly could and doing the things that he loved to do. Were the pieces in place for you from a systems perspective? For some reason, I rejected the notion that I was going to be able to get any help from within the system. I knew Bruce was not going to be going to any group discussions. Where he was comfortable, though, was talking about the disease on his own terms and wanting to communicate the, the fact that he was diagnosed with it and that research was important and that if there is an ability for medication to uh, alleviate your symptoms that you should take it. And those were the kinds of things that he really did care about. But we were more in the mode of helping the Alzheimer's Society fundraise and bring awareness than we were of tapping into their actual, I guess, supports that they have. And maybe it was because at that point, Bruce was presenting at a very high functioning level, you know, he was still driving. Yes, he had aphasia, meaning that he would have a difficulty in communicating, but we certainly didn't need any of the supports that you associate with, with Alzheimer's. But all of that changed in 2019, 2020, when I did need support. And that's when I felt like I was just thrown into 
a complete whirlwind of not understanding who gave supports at what level, at what time, how much, when, what you were available for. It is very confusing. I often say, you know, I've got a lot of education behind me and I served in government for a long period of time. And even I was confused by the bureaucracy. There really is no system and long-term care in the world that, that we work in is sort of this, this box that everybody gets tossed into. My other world that I, I cross into and, and I've spent the better part of 20 years is as a mental health advocate. Have you or Bruce or, or members of your family uh, experienced depression or anxiety as, as a result of this? And are there opportunities, do you think, as we think about where mental health fits into supporting families and individuals with, especially in their earlier days of, of their onset? We're in the midst of all that now. Let's start with Bruce. When he was diagnosed and he was cognizant of what the disease was and what it meant and what he was losing, he was very depressed and angry. And for a period of time, probably about two and a half, three years, the daily conversation would be his expression of his anger about having this disease and how unfair it was. And that took a toll on all of us in the house. Would Bruce seek help? Not a chance. And in fact, there became a point when he just decided he didn't want to take any medications whatsoever. So where an antidepressant may have been helpful, he fully rejected it and did not want to take any medication. And I was not in the mindset that I was going to hide it from him. I'm not going to crush up drugs and put them in his applesauce, for example, during that time. You know, and as you know, Donna, there's a point in time in Alzheimer's when they forget they have the disease or what the disease is or what it means. Even today, though, he will tell you, I have a disease, but he just doesn't know what it is. So the daily interaction with him on his anger, frustration, anxiety about having this disease and what it meant, that did disappear overnight, like with a snap of a finger. And it was it was one of the things that I wished would go away for the longest time because of the emotion that it held on me. But it also ended up becoming something that I carried forward on my own without him. So that's the that's Bruce and his struggle with mental health. From my point of view, I have done a great job of siloing it and I don't dwell on what I've lost or am losing. I also, for some reason, was able to be extremely calm during the violent period that we experienced with Bruce and level-headed. I worried about him an awful lot and I had a lot of anxiety around making sure he was living life to the fullest extent that he could and trying to juggle everything. Um, But it wasn't until he started exhibiting his behavioral symptoms last September that I decided I needed to have an outlet of help as well. And I started seeing a psychologist at that point in time. And that was helpful to me because what we focused on was the fact that I'm in a very difficult situation, making the best decisions I can and nobody's perfect. And I'm not going to get everything perfect, but I'm just doing the best that I can and to go easy on myself. And I needed that help. And uh, I know it's there should I need it for other challenges that that I will be facing. As you know, this is a long goodbye. And with Bruce in the hospital right now since January 1st, I feel like I'm part widow 
and it's a heavy load and it's got a lot of grief and a lot of loneliness and everything that I was able to wall up for the longest period of time, I don't wall up anymore because he's no longer my primary focus every single day of intense care and I have more time to think. So now is a good time for me as well to make sure that I'm getting the support I am on the grief side. The last piece that I I did want to point out is in young onset Alzheimer's, um, by virtue of the fact that these are young people, children are involved. And in my case, my sons were 14 and 11 when Bruce was diagnosed with young onset. So give you an example of my 11-year-old then, who's now 16. I mean, he went through and saw all of this stuff that I saw in terms of the anger and the mood changes and the a little bit of embarrassment about the strange things that his stepfather would do. And has that changed him? Yep. And the emotion around the violence in the house. And I know he mentions it on occasion uh, as he tries to make a joke out of it. So I know it's impacted him without a question, but he does see his school uh, um, guidance counselor and they do reach out to make sure he's doing okay. But COVID is just, uh, it's difficult. So now he worries about me. He worries about what's going on. He's worried that Bruce will end up having to come back into the house, which was not a good situation for about 18 months. Bruce turned his focus and attention on my younger son. And, you know, I know it's shocking to hear, but he'd tell him all the time, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And how hard is that for a 14 year old to hear? Yeah. And and I would imagine he's got enormous empathy and can really feel things deeply. I know in our our family, my, my father, he didn't have early onset, but he, he turned on my, on my nephew, his grandson. And, um, and, and he was violent. If he saw somebody who looked like him, I would take, I remember being in a Wendy's one day with him and he physically lifted a teenager from that local high school up and moved him. <laughs> and I thought we're going to be charged with assault. <laughs> oh my gosh. How, how old was your dad at the time, Donna? He was 65. Still young. I mean, that's still young, right? And still able-bodied. So he's an adult. And, and the thing is, is that people don't know that uh, you have a cognitive decline in, in an able-bodied person. So they're assuming the worst. And yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I know this is deeply personal, but it's it's so important to think about the need for the family members to get help too, uh, because it, it really is the loss. You're grieving. You've lost a personality. You've, you've lost the person you loved. This is not the person that you started your relationship with. And this certainly wasn't what you planned for. And you know what? Something Billy said to me um, when things were really hot in in the house in terms of Bruce, when I suggested that he go talk to his guidance counselor or a teacher that he liked, you know, just to have a conversation. He said, but mom, I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. I don't want to be different. And that's stigma. And it's, uh, you know, as much as I preach against stigma and Bruce preached against it and our friends who are in the Alzheimer's world preach against it, this young man felt it. And we've got to do better as a society because this isn't about cutting a special deal for him because he's got issues with his his step-parent who has Alzheimer's. It's about recognizing that you are going to need different supports. This is a very unique situation and you do need some extra help and don't be afraid to ask for it. People are going to give it willingly. 
Yeah. And, and that's the thing, asking for help and, and finding your agency to do that. So where is Bruce today? So I had to call 911 on January 1st because of Bruce's behaviors, meaning that he was physically violent. He was going to hurt me. He was going to hurt my sons. He was going to hurt the dog. It was just very clear and evident that he was out of control. And they brought him to Milton Emergency where they do not have training and they do not have understanding of Alzheimer's. And as such, they put him in a three-point restraint, tying both of his hands to his bed and his foot to his bed, stripped him, took everything out of the room and behind a locked door with a guard posted on the door. It was devastating to see. I, I did go in to see him, but the reality is that they didn't have the supports. They just don't know how to deal with somebody who has these behavioral symptoms, who is so big, 6'2", 250 pounds at the time. So the other pressure, though, on the system is, well, now that they got them, what are they going to do with them? So the doctor who was in charge called over to the Oakville Hospital and secured a transfer into the psychiatric unit where he ended up going, and that was complete lockdown. I wasn't allowed to see him. I brought him some clothing. But once he got in there, the psychiatrist said, well, these are behavioral issues. This isn't uh, what we're meant for either. So we got to transfer him out of there. And that's when I called over to Baycrest and essentially begged to get Bruce on the list, a short list, a shorter list of getting him into this unit. And as you know, and as a lot of people may not know, which I will disclose now, is um, a lot of times the way to get people into these specialized units is when you have to call police enforcement on your spouse, on your loved one, and that gets them into the system. And once they're in the system, they can't be sent home to you because there's a risk to the person's life, my life, and I can't care for him and there's no place for them to go. So suddenly all the pieces start to move very quickly. And 12 days after being in the Oakville uh, psychiatric unit, he was transferred to Baycrest. And he's been there ever since. And the restraints came off and they weren't doping him up with Ativan. And they started to work with him. And today, although he does still need on occasion some kind of PRN, I don't know what the acronym is, but it's basically extra medication in order to, to calm him down. He is functioning as, as normal as you can. And we're getting to the point where we're talking about replacement in a long-term care facility, which if you asked me on January 1st, would that happen? I would have said, nope. Well, and the path into long-term care in Ontario, Canada is is through hospitals now. It, it's actually very difficult to get in through community. Oh, that's sad. Because that just means that people are taking an enormous amount of risk mm-hmm. by keeping somebody home as long as they did. The system's just not built properly, even when you call 911, when the police come. It's, is, is there a better way than, than having the police have to come I am with you 100% on this. This is why I'm so happy to be involved in a policy discussion. When the police officer arrived at my front door, the first thing I said to him was, he is big and he is violent, but please don't hurt him. He has Alzheimer's. And And this police officer said, I'm trained. I understand. Don't worry. But Donna, three ambulances, a fire truck, six uniformed police officers, that's who showed up. And they had to because I had him designated in the, the Halton Police Services Registry as being somebody 
who had Alzheimer's, who could become violent because the last thing I needed was an unfortunate incident, which can happen. And we've seen this happen where people who may have dementia aren't uh, understood to have a mental health issue or dementia, and they're treated with lethal force. And I know the difference, but I still worried about it. And that's what caused me to pull my punch many times in not calling 911 when I probably should have because I took too great a risk. But I called 911 because my sons were in the house that day and I had a greater concern for their physical well-being than I ever did for my own. And that's why I ended up calling and meeting the police at the door and saying, please just don't hurt them. Wow. So as we think about what's worked and in, in how the pieces need to connect themselves, you've got your care and support in the home with Bruce. You've now been through the hospital and then in a specialized unit. Now you're preparing to transition him to long-term care. If we're thinking about the path forward, and you're a younger person, so this wasn't what you planned for with Bruce. Imagine as we think about the population, our, our baby boomers are aging. The front end of the tranche, they're 75 right now. The population over 80 is going to double in the next 13 years. Dementia is only going to increase. From a policy perspective, what do we need to do to fix this? And I may be a little bit controversial on this, but it, it does line up with, I guess, um, my ideology, which is I do believe that the system, a system, is going to get built as we see more money being donated into the right causes uh, that work and that people who are experiencing this kind of disruption to create something that works for them. And I'll give you a a grassroots example, and that's a group called UQuest, which is out in Calgary. And it's just a group of people, families whose loved ones have young onset who are able-bodied but cognitively declined. And they have rented out a recreational facility where they go once a week, they socialize, they play sports, they have a recreational therapist they pay to come and do this once a week. And it is an absolute lifesaver for these guys because they develop a social network, they have an outlet of activity, and they're normal. And they have musicians come in, and it's it's more than just an adult daycare because it's specifically focused on young onset. So I think the solutions to the problems and the symptoms that we're facing are going to come from smart people saying, okay, I'm not getting what I need from the system, so we need something else. At a different time in my life in the future, my goal is going to be to try to figure out from a residential point of view, how do we put the right thing together? So I'm terrified. I'm literally terrified when I hear the debate around outlawing private care facilities, because I don't think the public system is going to be able to deal with a tranche of society and young Alzheimer's that need the supports that they need. It means that we shouldn't be able to have quality of life for people who are diagnosed at a younger age and it's going to get younger and younger. And the other point is, you know, as my parents like to say, Lisa, at 75, I feel a lot different than my parents felt at 75, right? I feel more like I'm 55 than I do. You know, my parents at 55 behave like I do at 75. So therefore, this notion of young onset, like I said, when you told me your father was 65, that's young. That would be young onset Alzheimer's now. It's not... It's not an older one and they can have a, a really strong quality of life for a number of years and they can live for a long time. I think folks like me 
who have an understanding of the public policy framework and an understanding of how investment and markets work, maybe we're going to be the group that comes forward to try to figure out what a system outside of the government system will look like for those who who want it and, and need it. And I'm not saying that it's going to be for profit or whatever that that discussion is. What I'm saying is that you still you need a place and how people access it is a different conversation as opposed to the fact that we just need the place and the space. Wow. And it it really does speak to differentiation and really starting to build out services around the needs of the people and who they are instead of putting you know, Bruce in with 85 year olds, which is, is where his destination will be when he transfers from Baycrest. You know, we've been saying that to your point, our, it, our baby boomers are not going to stand for this. They're not going to, they're, they're not going to accept this is your model for aging and aged care. So how do we disrupt it? And I'm really interested in your, your thinking around the role of philanthropy in this. Um, we're certainly not seeing government stepping up. And I know you, you were the minister of labor federally at one point, even in terms of thinking about who's going to care for our populations, you know, what are the skills and competencies that you need to, to support, uh, people with early onset Alzheimer's in, in, a, in a residential environment or a long-term care environment, day programming, or even early in the stages, how they support their family members. Uh, we know that as our population ages, our specialists are aging. It takes four years to train a nurse, eight years, if not longer, to train a specialist, a medical specialist. It, what we're not seeing is we're not seeing the kind of workforce planning that is contemplating the retirement of our baby boomers. And we're not seeing the kind of workforce planning to support the baby boomers and others as, as uh, they face challenges such as early onset Alzheimer's and, and Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. We're not ready. We are so not ready. I'm also, I'm also really shocked in the last number of years of how many times I've presented with Bruce at emergency for ailments that he may have and the complete lack of understanding of folks in the medical system of what Alzheimer's is and how it presents. There's not enough training in this space at all. And, and I mean that for doctors too. We, we ended up with a doctor. He went in for a urinary tract infection to emergency because he was referred to go there during COVID. And we ended up with a, a physician who was so frightened of Bruce because of his lack of filter when talking to her in a very direct way. She just didn't want to go into the room and deal with him anymore. And she let us sit there for a very long period of time waiting for another physician to come on shift so that she didn't have to be in the room with Bruce because she was afraid of him. And, you know, as I said, this is Alzheimer's. This isn't about him being a mean person that just you need a few tips and tricks on how to redirect, how to talk, where to look, how to how to back off if they're becoming aggressive. And you just need a little bit of understanding. But there's no training. That's one of the things we've we've spoken about. How do you start building out those competencies? So mental health literacy, dementia literacy. How do you give people the tools to, to deal with this? Every time we go to a facility, I always hear the same thing. Oh my gosh, he's so young. He's so young to have, Al I've never met anybody this young with Alzheimer's. 
Wow. But uh, I, I really do believe it's going to be voices like yours, uh, people like you uh, to to rally, to lead. I'm sure that got your first followers already in place and there'll be a lot more to come. So if there's one thing through this that we've seen, we haven't seen a whole lot of leadership in the sector. We haven't seen those those voices and those champions. I know it's not easy to get to be one of the first ones out, but but thank you. Well, I appreciate it, Donna. And you asked me a really good question of what do I what do I envision? I'll tell you what would have helped me. What would have helped me is if a physical place, bricks and mortar existed, where over a period of time, I could have Bruce go at various points of his decline. There's staging in Alzheimer's, stage three, four, five, six. When you get to seven, it's the end stage and you're bedridden. But there's a lot of life in stages three, four, five, and six. And you need different supports at those levels. What I would like to see is a bricks and mortar facility where maybe I only need him to go once a week at the beginning, just so that he becomes acclimatized. But it is it has an ability to receive people with dementia through all the stages for different points of contact, for different time frames, ending with the long-term care facility that is needed when you hit stage seven, all in one facility so that you can keep people home as long as you wish. But on the other hand, you're not keeping people home so long that it has a massive risk associated with the family's life. So that's kind of what the dream is and let's see where it goes. After my conversation with Lisa, I took away these key insights. First, in order to be able to build equitable healthcare and long-term care experiences for everyone, we simply cannot rely only on government systems. The need is too urgent and far too great for us to be entirely reliant on public policymakers who are ultimately focused on the broad collective. The role of private care and philanthropy can't be discounted. Lisa believes that it will be determined and affected individuals such as herself who will play an important role in innovation and in building the systems of care around the people who need it. Second, although philanthropy will play a huge role in building out specialized care systems for dementia patients and people with early onset Alzheimer's, and anyone else who who needs these services, there are some policy changes that are going to be needed to ensure the safety and peace of mind for caregivers who are all too often sent mixed messages and caught in unthinkable places. And third, more work needs to be done to fight against the stigma associated with dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and early onset Alzheimer's disease. Lisa has struggled to find the proper care for Bruce due to stigma and lack of training. Even detailing doctor's visits where doctors were too nervous to treat Bruce due to his behaviors, behaviors commonly associated with Alzheimer's disease. Although the help exists, the systems to access it are confusing and complicated especially for caregivers already sacrificing so much in order to keep their loved ones healthy and safe. The least we can do, individually and collectively, is to work to remove the negative stigma associated with these terrible diseases.
Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. You can follow Lisa on Twitter at LRATE, R-A-I-T-T, or on Instagram at LisaRATEMP. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our next episode will be airing on July 20th. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Stay well.